I got the horse right here, the name is Paul Revere, and here's a guy that says if the web is clear, can do, can do. This is Bill Duncliffe. Welcome back to Can Do, the podcast about all things horse racing. Some history, some handicapping, and some humor. Of course, this podcast is hard on the heels of last Saturday's Breeders' Cup. Having seen some historic performances, it makes sense that this week we visit one of the great repositories of the history of our game with Brian Bouillet, Director of Communications at the National Racing Museum and Hall of Fame. Brian is a former newspaper reporter and columnist, as well as an author. He grew up in the capital region of New York and is going to talk to us about, among other things, the Museum and Hall of Fame, his book, the reasons why Saratoga Springs is and should be for you a year-round destination, and not least of all, how we came to be a Red Sox fan in the heart of Yankee country. For our big score story, we are going to review the Breeders' Cup results that our guest handicappers turned in for last week's big Saturday Breeders' Cup races, and Matt Packard is going to rejoin us to give us some insight into one of this Saturday's races. But enough of me. Let's get this party started. Our guest today is Brian Bouye, Communications Director at the National Museum of Racing and Hall of Fame in beautiful Saratoga Springs, New York. Brian, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, my pleasure, Bill. Happy to do it. So, Brian, uh, I guess there's a, a little bit of a chicken and egg question to get us started. Which, which came first for you, the interest in communications and media relations or the interest in horse racing? And how did those two end up coming together? Well, I'd, I'd probably have to say the interest in horse racing, although it was just kind of a, a peripheral interest at first. Um, you know, growing up in the Saratoga area, uh, you become pretty familiar with the track, you know, uh, you know, right from the beginning. And, you know, as a, as a kid, you know, 9, 10, 11 years old, you know, my parents would take, take us to the track, you know, three or four times a summer. And, uh, you know, I, I didn't know anything about the horses at that point. It was more just... Uh, you know, go for the day, enjoy the atmosphere, and, you know, kind of uh, take in the whole scene. And, you know, what I realized about it first, it was just, it was a very interesting place. It was an interesting atmosphere, uh, you know, all the color and pageantry of it. But, uh, you know, it took me, you know, until years later on before I really got interested in the sport. You know, when we went initially, it was just, you know, kind of a, a fun family outing. So, um, you know, I, I would say I was interested in the sport, but I didn't really become uh, you know, totally, totally involved with it until, you know, I began my, my career in media. It's interesting. Those of us who are, uh, you know, devotees of the sport, there is a, I don't know, it's hard to even identify. I think what, at what point did the line cross where it became like just something, as you said, you were interested in versus, and obsession is maybe too strong a word, but something you were passionate about, right? Yeah. I mean, as, as, as I got older, you know, I started, you know, learning a little bit about, you know, some of the history of the horses and some of the history of the great jockeys that were here and, you know, the trainers and just the fact that this was so important in our culture, uh, you know, here in Saratoga. And then, you know, you start learning about, uh, you know, the other tracks and the other major races and everything. And, uh, you know, I went to college uh, down in Albany at the College of St. Rose and I started getting interested in journalism. And I've always, always had a passion for sports and everything. So, you know, I got a job as a, as a sports writer for the paper in Troy and, uh, you know, had some opportunities to cover Saratoga and, and learn more and more about it. Um, and then a few years later, I took the sports editor position, you know, right right in town here at Saratoga, oh, wow. uh, at the Saratogian. And, you know, uh, we were immersed in it at that point. You know, we put out a daily racing sheet called the Pink Sheet, uh, which is filled with, you know, analysis, handicapping picks, uh, race charts, and, you know, history and features and what's going on here. So, um, you know, at that point, you know, it just, you know, became kind of a daily thing. And that's kind of when I would say the, the obsession began. And, uh, you know, that was a lot of fun for a few years. Yes, in Saratoga, for those who have never been there, is I, I find it a fascinating town because it's one of the few towns where 
the racing and the town itself really it, it, it's hard to separate them right Ra- racing is really just a, a, a part of the culture and, and, and the environment in the whole town whether it's the six weeks in summer or not really I think correct yeah it, it's definitely year-round I mean you know from uh, you know that that third week in July through Labor Day you know we get six weeks and it's 40 days of racing but um, it, it's part of the the fabric of the city year-round I mean the uh, the training track opens in April here and you know, a lot of the, the trainers, you know, from Todd Pletcher to Chad Brown are bringing in horses as early as April, and they're here way after the meet, too. A lot of them will train their Breeders' Cup horses here, and the uh, uh, the training track is, you know, usually goes through the end of October. So, you know, from April through October, there's there's horse activity here, and uh, there was just a, a, a sale at Phasing Tipton, you know, earlier this week, and they have uh, multiple sales here throughout the year. So it, it's something that's part of the culture year-round. Uh, there's there's a lot of horse farms in the area. There's retirement farms. Um, so it, it's part of the, the fabric of the city year-round, no doubt about it. You mentioned something, too, Brian, about the history of the sport and then the feeling of it in Saratoga as well. And that is something that you really do get when you are on the track and in the environment. I, you know, I like to point out to people that when you park over by the Oklahoma training track, you can actually walk across the original track that John Morrissey and his crew started, you know, what, more than 100 years ago, right? Um, it, it's, it's amazing. You know, I mean, they, they had this four-day experimental meeting in 1863, and it was, you know, right around the time of the battles of Gettysburg and Vicksburg, you know. I mean, we're, we're right in the middle of the Civil War, and the majority of the, the horses in the country have been, uh, you know, requisitioned for war efforts. And, and here these guys are, uh, you know, opening up a, a thoroughbred meet in upstate New York. I mean, the war wasn't going on up here, obviously. It was mostly on, on the southern front. But just the fact that they were doing this with, you know, the country basically being torn apart uh, is fascinating. And the people that they got involved with and, you know, how it all came about, it's just it's tremendous history. And, you know, even if you're not a big racing fan, uh, I, I think the story is, is interesting from a, a cultural perspective. That is a interesting juxtaposition. Uh, let me try that word again. Juxtaposition on the timeline there: Gettysburg and Vicksburg going on, and at the same time, the first meeting at Saratoga. That's, I, I never put that one together. Actually, that's pretty interesting. Yeah, and it's amazing. I mean, some of the the jockeys, uh, you know, the first few years of Saratoga, there there were you know even escaped slaves that were riding on oh, horses right. up here. Um, oh. So it's. Uh, you know, it's an ma- amazing thing to think about, you know, how this all fits into, you know, American history and the culture and, uh, you know, sports in America. Wow. That, that's fascinating. So, so Brian, how long have you been with the, the Museum and Hall of Fame, and, and what part of the job do you enjoy the most about it? Yeah, I, I joined the museum in uh, January of 2010. Um, I, I came right here from the, uh, the Saratogian, and uh, I just thought it was a perfect opportunity to, you know, kind of further what I wanted to do as far as career path. Um, you know, I, I liked the newspaper business. I enjoyed it. Uh, but it kind of got to a point where it was just a lot of nights and a lot of weekends, and the schedule was, you know, kind of hectic. So uh, the opportunity at the museum presented itself, and, you know, I had a great love for thoroughbred racing. And, um, you know, I saw some opportunities here to, to really do what I wanted to do with thoroughbred racing year-round. So, um, you know, the most fun about it is, is being involved in the Hall of Fame for me. Um, you know, the history of the sport is amazing, but, uh, you know, to, to be around the, the Hall of Fame jockeys and the trainers and uh, plan these events that we have, including our annual induction ceremony, it's, it's so much fun. I'd say probably one of the, the most exciting things I get to do is, you know, I run the committees here that determine who gets into the Hall of Fame, and I coordinate all those uh, different committees, our contemporary, our historic, our uh, steeplechase committees, and, and, you know, I get the honor each year to, uh, when we know who the selections are going to be from the voting panel, is, is I get to call the people and tell them, 
guess what? You got inducted into the Hall yeah. of Fame. So, yeah. uh, so that's an incredible honor, and to you know hear the emotion of people when they realize that they've they've gotten in is it's just it's such a great thing to do. It's going to be a great honor to make the call. Let me ask: Is it, is it a great honor to run the committees, though, or is that <laughs> is there a lot of uh, back and forth there that you have to manage? Oh, sure. It, it's it's a lot of fun, but you know, we we have you know some great industry professionals and historians that that sit on these committees, and uh, you know, each year for the contemporary process, we have a, we have a committee of eighteen people on it, and they basically form the ballot that goes out to the nationwide voting panel. And uh, you know, people ask, well, why do you do that? Why don't you just let the nationwide voting panel? Well. Uh, we're, we're a very unique sport. It's not like baseball or football. Um, we can take active participants into the Hall of Fame. Um, jockeys and trainers become eligible after 20 years as a jockey and after 25 years as a trainer, and a lot of them are still riding or training. Um, and then each year you have you know hundreds of new thoroughbreds that are eligible. So it would be kind of a, uh, a crazy hodgepodge if you just let anybody vote on the candidates and everything. So uh, we, we really kind of whittle it down to you know some very qualified finalists for the, the committee to uh, select for the voting panel and there's some back and forth on who's deserving and who isn't and uh, you know we shape a really good ballot each year with you know a lot of worthy candidates so um, it's fun to go through that process each year and you know see how it develops. And when does the process start Brian? When do you first start having it? Because I know that the induction ceremony I think is like the second Friday or the third Friday of the meet typically. Uh, yeah we're, we're right uh, we're right in probably the, the second depending on how the schedule falls where we usually uh uh, coordinate with Naira. They have the Hall of Fame stakes, which is usually the Friday right before uh, uh, the Whitney Handicap. This year it was August 3rd. Uh, next year the inductions will be August 2nd. So, you know, we're at the end of the second week of the uh, uh, the Saratoga meet. And, and basically, you know, there's, there's so much that goes into it. And usually we start our process in January uh, with the first committee, which is the Contemporary Committee. And, you know, we go through all the nominations that we have. Um, anybody can nominate somebody to the Hall of Fame, whether it's a horse or a jockey or a trainer or a pillar of the turf, as long as they meet the basic requirements. Um, and then the committee looks at all of these nominations each year, and there's usually over 100 of them. Uh, and they whittle it down to, you know, uh, as many candidates as they view are worthy of being put before the voters. So that, that's a fun process to do each year. And, uh, you know, seeing the back and forth with the committee members arguing for who they like and, you know, who they don't like. I bet it is. I know. And uh, it, it, it's interesting in our sport, too, that, um, you know, the, you know, baseball, the field of candidates, let's say, is fairly uniform. But in our sport, you've got dirt horses, turf horses, you know, males, females, uh, just talking about the horses, never mind the jockeys and the trainers. Yeah, yeah. And, and they're and they're all competing in one pool, you know. Um, it, it's, um, you know, people say, well, why don't you wait until the, the trainers or the jockeys retire? And, you know, a lot of senses, that's when a lot of them do get in. But, you know, I look at the example of, you know, some of these trainers especially, you know, a lot of them train up until their, their 80s or right, right until the, the time of their passing. I mean, I think it would be a shame to make, uh, you know, accomplished trainers like a like a Bob Baffert or a D. Wayne Lucas. You know, if we kind of went by the prestige of the other sport, you know, we would be able to preach these guys as, as Hall of Fame legends, you know. Um, that's a good D. Point. Wayne Lucas. Yeah. yeah, D. Wayne Lucas says he has no intention of retiring anytime soon. He's He's in his 80s and still going strong, and it's a sport where you can have success over a long period of time. Um, you know, I look at Mike Smith, who's in his 50s as a jockey, and, uh, you know, he's still going out there and winning big races. You know, won the Triple Crown this year uh, at a time when most people would be retired. So, you know, it'd be kind of a shame to not recognize these people while they're still, you know, in their prime. So it's, it's certainly different than other sports, but, um, you know, I think there's a lot of good reasoning behind how we do it. 
Well, I will say this. We would all be lucky if we all were able to look like Wayne Lucas does in his 80s when we were in our 80s. Cause oh, my goodness. Is he amazing or what? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Hey, you know, it's, it's a really interesting point you made about the trainers, you know, doing it till they, you know, pass to the other side. Um, this summer, I believe it was, Emerald Downs ran a race where only trainers who had who were over the age of 90 could enter their horses, and they had five, I believe it was five trainers enter horses in that race. It's amazing, you know, and there's, I know there was a, I think it was Tampa Bay Downs earlier this year, there was a, a trainer that they believe, and they're not 100% sure, but they you know, thought he set the record uh, for being the oldest trainer in North America to win a race, and I think the guy was 97 years old. Oh so, um, you know, a lot of these trainers, you know, say that staying involved in the sport is really kind of their uh, their fountain of youth, you know, as long as you've got a, a two-year-old prospect in the barn that, <laughs> right. you know, it, it keeps you young, keeps you vibrant, so, yep. you know, God bless these guys, so. Well, I, I think at my age, I don't want any two-year-olds in my barn. But I, I the, you know, if you're talking the horse variety, that's good. Yeah. Um, yeah. Hey, so, Brian, take us. Uh, you know, for someone who's never been to the Hall of Fame, because uh, I've been twice now, and it's it's a it's a great. If you love the sport, if you're even just interested in history, I think it's a great tour. But if you don't mind, take us on a quick tour of what a first-time visitor to the hall should uh, to the museum and the hall should should make sure to see. Yeah, I mean, I think we've got something for everyone. Uh, you know, whether you're, uh, you know, kind of a, a person just learning about the sport or you're bringing your family in or you're really the hardcore person who knows all the history, you know, we have uh, such a great collection of artwork and artifacts that, you know, will really dazzle you. Uh, the, the Hall of Fame is obviously, you know, our, our bread and butter where we have all the legends honored in there and show a lot of great films and everything. And, um, you know, we're, we're renovating that over the next couple of years. We've got a big project that's going to be a $20 million expansion uh, to, to modernize and digitize everything in there and come up with a new signature film. But, um, you know, if you've, got, if you've got children, you know, we have great family areas. We have a lot of great educational programs for children to learn about the different aspects of horse racing and horsemanship and, you know, what people's jobs are like at the track and everything. Uh, if you're an art lover, and you love the paintings and the, you know, and the, the photography of the sport. You know, we have several galleries and probably, you know, in my opinion, the finest collection of uh, uh, equine artwork in the world. You know, we've got you know portraits by Edward Troy, uh, Richard Stone Reeves, you know, Franklin Voss. Um, so, if you're into that aspect, you know, these people captured the essence of the sport for, you know, multiple centuries and. Uh, you know, it's just an opportunity to learn about so many different aspects of it. You know, we've got a racing simulator. Uh, you know, if you want to know what it's like to be a jockey, uh, it's it's an active racehorse simulator. It's not like one of those little bob up and down things you do at a fair. It's a very real simulation, and you can take different uh, different lengths of races at different tracks. We had a uh, oh, wow. former jockey, Rob, yeah, we had Robbie Davis, a former jockey, sure. former demonstrated the summer, and uh, you know, he said, you know, other than being on a thoroughbred in a race, this is as close as you're going to get to it. So. Uh, a lot of different sort of neat interactive experiences. We, we rotate our exhibits regularly. Um, this year we had a, a nice exhibit honoring the, the 150th anniversary of the Belmont Stakes. Um, we've got one for next summer on the Travers, which will have its 150th anniversary. But, um, you know, we rotate and do a lot of different stuff. So there's we really think there's something for everybody uh, when you make a visit here to the museum. Well, I'll say this, uh, uh, Brian, for those of us, and I'll include myself in that, who have uh, on occasion yelled at jockeys uh, in more or less in words like, what are you doing? Maybe we should all get a ride on that simulator just to get that experience and see what it's like. I tell you, if it's if it's something you're not used to, you know, you look at it and you think, oh, maybe that's not so bad. But if you haven't experienced it and you get off, your legs are going to feel like jello for a couple of hours. You know, it's... Uh, 
it's really tough, and it, it definitely gives you a new appreciation for you know what they're doing uh, in a race and in training and everything. You know, I, I like to tell people who are not familiar with the sport, and they always kind of look at me with wondering eyes when I say it. But I always say that pound for pound, jockeys are the greatest athletes in the world. And and I, you know, like I said, I always get the quizzical look when I say that. But when I explain it to people, you know, you know, eleven hundred pound animal going thirty five miles an hour, among other eleven hundred pound animals going thirty five miles an hour, and you're steering them through, and you're you're encountering traffic, and you know, et cetera. That's that that's that's that takes a great deal of athleticism. There's no doubt. It, it takes an incredible skill set, and I, and I think when you look at jockeys, you know, it, it requires strength, it requires agility, it requires hand-eye coordination, uh, you know, quick reactions and reflexes, and you have to have a plan in every race, and you know, then you have to have Plan B when things don't go well. So there, there's so many things that what happens when a jockey rides a race, and you know, I, I have such tremendous respect for these guys. I know a lot of people give the, the trainers a lot of credit, and they should, uh, you know, because they, they, they get these animals in the, in the top form and, you know, ready to race. But uh, I, I'm amazed at what these jockeys do every day. It's just, you know, phenomenal to, you know, talk to them and hear their thoughts on race riding and, uh, you know, the, the memories that they have for a lot of these races. I mean, uh, I, I remember talking to Ramon Dominguez last year, and, you know, he was remembering specific details about, you know, just random obscure claiming race mounts, you know, and he'll tell you exactly where he was at every point in every race, you know, and it's just phenomenal to, to hear these guys. Wow, wow. Well, that's what make the, makes the great ones great, really, right? They remember those Absolutely. details. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Hey, hey, Brian, um, one opportunity I'd love to tell you, you to tell us a little bit about is um, the opportunity to tour the hall with uh, one of my favorites, and I think a lot of people's favorites, the legendary Tom Durkin. Oh sure, he uh, he's a treasure, and and for people who don't know, uh, for the last couple of years, you know Tom Durkin, uh, since he retired from calling the races, uh, you know Tom had a 25-year career at Naira and called the races for 43 years overall. Um, you know he's he's a Saratoga resident, and he was looking for some uh, uh, some things to do in his retirement, and we talked to him and uh, said, Hey Tom, what do you think about being a tour guide at the museum? And uh, he kind of chuckled at it at first, but uh, you know the idea made a lot of sense and. Uh, you know, he's such a tremendous storyteller, and you yeah. saw that with the way he called races, but, you know, he does that through the museum now, too. I mean, he's got such a wide knowledge of, you know, the sports history and, uh, you know, puts his own personal touches on things. So people can get a tour with him during the race meet, and, you know, he'll take you through and he'll describe some of the artwork and explain it. But, you know, he'll take you to the Hall of Fame and the different galleries and tell you about personal stories about, you know, jockeys and trainers and horses that he knows and favorite, uh, you know, races that he called. Um, you know, so those have been very popular. They, they've pretty much been almost sold out every time. Um, wow. You know, we did, we did a program with Tom before the summer, uh, with this being the 150th Belmont and, and him having called the, uh, uh, the Belmont Stakes for, you know, a quarter of a century. We said, hey, Tom, what do you think about coming in for a program to kind of relive your Belmont memories? And we, we did this, you know, on, on a random, you know, Wednesday night in May, uh, you know, when Saratoga isn't filled yet with all the visitors and everything. And, and he packed the house, you oh, know. Wow. It's just, you know, it tells you that kind of popularity that he has. And, uh, you know, we're, we're fortunate to have him here. He's a great ambassador for the sport and uh, very personable and, and just an absolutely terrific storyteller. So, you know, we're, we're planning on having those tours again next summer and, you uh, you know, if you want to have a good time, get on one of those Tom Durkin tours. Well, sa save a spot for me, all right, because I want to do that. Uh, Absolutely. We'll, we'll take care of you, no doubt. <laughs> all right. So, Brian, you talked a little bit about the modernization and expansion plans for the for the museum and the hall. If you could talk about those a little bit more and then also, importantly, 
you know, I know you have a fundraising drive going on for that as well. So if you could tell people how they could contribute to that effort as well, that'd be great. Sure. We're, uh, we're hoping, we're not hoping, we're, we're planning on for uh, the, the 2020 race meet to unveil an entirely new Hall of Fame. And by that, what we mean is um, a modernization, a digitalization. Uh, you know, the Hall of Fame plaques that are in there, you know, they, they're basically written testaments to, to what it took to get these people into the Hall of Fame. And what we're trying to do now is we're trying to bring those to life. We're, we're digitizing those. People can go on touch screens and learn the stories. They can play race replays. They can get interviews. Um, they can track pedigrees of the horses. Um, you know, they can look at, you know, where the active guys are doing that day, you know, what their entries are, the results are. Um, just basically bring the Hall of Fame to life. And with that, um, we're looking at also doing a 360-degree uh, special movie that we're working on shooting right now and filming and uh, kind of tell the history of what it takes to be a Hall of Fame member and uh, mm. show the pageantry and excitement of the sport at different tracks and venues and uh, you know the horse farms and everything. So um, it's going to be filmed in some very uh, unique formats, and it's going to be a show. It's going to be you know a 15-minute presentation, um, and then you know after that, it's going to kind of descend into the opportunity to to look at the different legends and how they got into the Hall of Fame and everything. So we're we're very excited about it. Um, there's a promotional piece if you want to get an idea of you know, what we're looking to do. If you go on our website, racingmuseum.org, that's right on the front page, and you can play a five-minute video, uh, and it shows you kind of all the different aspects about the emotion of the Hall of Fame and, you know, what it takes to get here and what we're planning with this project. So we're, we're very excited about it. Racingmuseum.org is the site. Yep, and okay. uh, we, we've already, uh, it's, it's an expensive project. It's something that we're, we're hoping the entire uh, uh, industry will get behind, and, and, you know, we're off to a really good start as far as the fundraising. Uh, but it's it's a costly project, so if people want to donate, they'll be able to uh, uh, do that right on our website, and uh, you know, hopefully, be a part of the project. So, uh, Brian, you are, I believe, uh, an author as well, correct? Is that right? Yeah, uh, that that kind of came about by accident. To, to be honest with you, I, I never had, you know, I've always uh, enjoyed writing, and. Uh, you know, had a, a good journalism career before I came into the museum, but I never had any real intentions of writing a book. But this this kind of you know uh, came about when I said, well, somebody else isn't going to write this than I am, because I thought the story was so good. And uh, being here in Saratoga, you hear the name John Morrissey quite a bit. Sure, he's the, he's the guy who founded the track and got this whole thing started. And uh, you know, I first knew about him, you know, when I was working down at the Troy Paper because he grew up in Troy, and his story was just so phenomenal. This was a um, an illiterate Irish immigrant who, you know, uh, didn't have any education. He was involved in, you know, gang warfare and everything, and he went on to be the undefeated bare-knuckle boxing champion of America. Um, then he got involved in casino gambling and politics and, you know, the whole gangs of New York era with the dead rabbits and everything. And then this guy comes up to Saratoga and starts the racetrack and, uh, you know, did that against all odds. And if that wasn't, you know, crazy enough, he went on to become a two-term United States congressman, and then was twice elected to the New York State Senate. Um, so just, he did all these amazing things in a life of only 47 years. And, uh, you know, I'd written a few feature articles about him for you know, different publications and magazines. And, um, you know, I was stunned that there really wasn't a real true biography yeah. on the guy out there. Um, and after a couple of years and realizing that basically I had all the research done and um, you know, I thought, let's, let's talk about this. And I, I pitched it to a few publishers and, uh, 
surprisingly, they were all interested. And, uh, you know, they, by the end of the process, it was kind of which one felt like the best fit. And uh, I went with the History Press, and they did a great job as far as helping put it together and shape it. And uh, the book came out in 2016 called Bare Knuckles and Saratoga Racing, The Remarkable Life of John Morrissey. And uh, it's, it was a great time to write it and uh, something I'm very proud of, and, you know, people have really enjoyed it. Bare Knuckles and Saratoga Racing is the name of the book. Oh, that sounds great. Uh, you know, as you were describing it, there's a million jokes going through my mind about uh, illiterate, bare-knuckle fighter, drinker, congressman, but we should probably leave those for another venue, right? Uh, we we want to keep <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> you know, with the political climate today, it's pretty interesting. But, you know, he, he was a guy who was, you know, this real uh, uh, rags-to-riches American story. And, you know, he learned to, you know, this was a guy at age 19 learned to read and write and make himself better. Um, you know, he really wanted to be accepted in society, and you know, despite his background as, as a you know a fighter, yeah, he was a very smart businessman. And you know, all the stakes that he got in casinos, I mean, he turned himself into a multimillionaire. So this wasn't uh, you know some typical thug, but he was smart enough to realize that when he started Saratoga, uh, that there was still kind of an aura about him as you know he was involved in gangs and you know beating people to a pulp. Um, he put all the money up for Saratoga, and he got the whole project going, but. He wanted to be accepted by society. He wanted the racetrack to be accepted. So uh, he kept his name out of the incorporation documents, and he oh, put up wow. William Travers as kind of a, a figurehead for the association. So uh, this was a very smart man. Wow. Oh, that, that sounds like a great story and a great book. No, thank you. So, uh, Brian, I think that um, you know, when I met you, one of the things we talked about is that, uh, you know, obviously the attendance for the hall, I would imagine, in the museum peaks during the racing season but of course it's open year-round and and uh you know it's 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 a great take no matter what um and i think sometimes inadvertently people tend to think of saratoga as you know just a racing town but there's actually a lot to do uh in the town whether it's the racing season or not um if you don't mind tell people a little bit about some of the other things that are available for them to do in town even when racing is not going on oh absolutely and, and this is this has changed so much i'd say probably within the last 10 to 15 years and you know, you're right about that perception. For a long time, it was, you know, Saratoga was the August place to be. And then with the meat expanding, it was called the summer place to be. Uh, but, you know, the, the businesses in town and the Chamber of Commerce and you know, all the museums and everybody who's got a stake in here started, uh, you know, realizing, you know, this is such a great place to be year-round. You know, we're right now in fall, and it's it's beautiful autumn season here. And, you know, the weather's as good as it is, you know, in Vermont or any of these places. And you've got all the places to go for you know, uh, watching fall foliage and things to do. But um, just at the museum, you know, we have a lot of activities year-round, and we're always trying to have at least a couple of things every month, um, you know, whether it's, you know, extended hours for a Breeders' Cup party or, you know, in the spring we show all the Triple Crown races here, and we have a big Kentucky Derby party. Um, you know, we do a lot of special farm tours and events and everything. And, um, you know, they, there's a lot of businesses in town that are doing the same sort of thing. Um, you know, I give the Chamber of Commerce a lot of credit, each February we have an event here called Chowder Fest, which um, when it first got started, people kind of thought, you know, what is this? Um, you know, why would anybody want to come to Feb come to Saratoga in February when it's 15 degrees mm -hmm. and stand on a street and, uh, you know, try chowder? But it brings in 40,000 people for this weekend. Now. Oh, my gosh. You know, people, wow. people come, you know, and this is, a, this is a small town, but, you know, it's events like that. You know, there, there's always something going on along those lines, um, you know, to, to entertain people and bring people here no matter what the season is. 
Now, I got to ask you, O'Brien, that's not Manhattan clam chowder, is it? Because that's just tomato soup with clams in it, right? I mean, I think. Well, each, <laughs> each, each restaurant has an opportunity to, to put out their special brand. And, uh, you know, people go all up and down Broadway and all the different restaurants and up Caroline Street and everything. And, you know, it's amazing. You see people in line, you know, 20 deep for, you know, little four ounce samples. So uh, it's really become something that's, you know, more of an event uh, than they could ever anticipate. And it's the. Uh, you know, stuff like that and the first night celebrations and the, the holiday events, you know, people, uh, you know, Saratoga is really a destination year round. Yeah. No, no, it is. That's, and that sounds like a great event and there's no better time for chowder than mid-February. Let's face it. That's, uh, that's a stick to your ribs, uh, food. Absolutely. So, uh, Brian, one, one thing I got to ask you, cause I, I, I noticed this about you, uh, and my admiration for you went way up when I saw this, but how did you become a Red Sox fan in the middle of Yankee country? Because uh, <laughs> I think that's Yankee country out there. I always am oh, very it, conscious it, of that. It's definitely, it's definitely Yankee country, um, you know, but uh, as we say, Red Sox nation that knows no limits. Um, you know, I, I, I got interested in them, you know, watching baseball growing up, and, you know, they were kind of the sad sack losers at that point and always uh, second best to the Yankees. And, you know, um, yeah, my my father's a Yankee fan, so of course I didn't want to do that. You know, I gotta be gotta be different, and uh, you know my brother likes the New York Mets, so uh, you know I'm gonna go with Boston. Was kind of my thing, and but uh, yeah, I'm a huge huge Sox fan, and uh, you know I watch all the games, and you know I I get the uh, baseball package because they're out of market here, so right, uh, right. I watch quite, watch quite a bit of them. But yeah, I go try to get out to a few games each year, and uh, yeah, it's it's a big passion, absolutely. Well, I uh, I always like to say to people that if you are uh, married to a friend with a Red Sox fan, especially one of a certain generation, right, you know they're loyal because they sat through as you did, thick and thin, right? A lot of hard. Oh, uh, no doubt, we we went through a lot of uh, a lot of agonizing nights, and uh, you know I can I can still remember you know Aaron Boone in two thousand three, oh. and like it was yesterday, but. Uh, you know, we've been we've been pretty good since then, so I'm pretty happy with where that's gone. Uh, you know, if that was the price to pay for what's happened since then, it was it I'll was worth it. it. Yeah, yeah, but that was exactly. that was a particularly bad one. <laughs> exactly. Out of many, out of many. Listen, thanks, Brian. You've been a terrific guest, and we really appreciate you joining us today. As a measure of my appreciation, I want to award you with a gift certificate, and I'm going to reach into my goodie grab bag here, and here we go. You have won a $25 gift certificate to Brindisi's Restaurant and Bar in downtown Saratoga Springs. So, Brian, thanks again for joining us, (laughs) and we hope to talk to you again soon. My pleasure. Thank you, Bill. All right, Brian. Take care. Thanks a lot. And now we move on to our big score segment. As it always is, the Breeders' Cup presented a tough challenge for our guest handicappers. Graded stakes horses coming together from all different venues to square off against each other in large, contentious fields. You couldn't ask for a greater handicapping challenge, but our team was more than up to the task. We had winners in both City of Light and Enable. We had Juicy Price second-place finishers in Shalone in the Philly and Mare Sprint and Gunavera in the Classic. We also had World of Trouble, a tantalizingly close second-place finisher in the Turf Sprint. Even Limousine Liberal, Azira, Analyzing, and Blue Prize gave solid efforts and some hope down the stretch in each one of their events at solid prices. You can't win them all, or so they say. But our team gave out solid value plays in this year's Breeders' Cup. And we all know it's got to be about value, or you're going to be standing in the ATM line at the track more often than you want to. A final note I just want to share with you. I can tell you that in the first six weeks of our podcast, if you took our guest handicapper suggestions and made a $2 win place bet on their suggestions, your return on investment so far would be just north of 120%. For those who are math challenged, that is more than doubling your money. 
Anyone who isn't interested in doubling your money, please form a line and get the hell out of the way for those of us who are interested in doing so. So a real note of thanks to our guest handicappers and a reminder to all of you to keep listening to these folks. I wouldn't have asked them to be on the podcast if I didn't think they knew what they were talking about. And on that note, joining us today as our guest handicapper is Matt Packard. Matt is two for two so far in his guest handicapping stint, so we're going to see if he can continue the charm with this third effort. Matt, what do you have for us? Hey, thanks, Bill. Thanks for having me back again. So, uh, Bill, it's opening weekend at, at Del Mar, which is, uh, I think, a great meet. I love this uh, this Bing Crosby meet at, at Del Mar. It's a great, uh, great venue, great time of year to be out there. So, kind of fired up about that. So, I, I'm definitely looking to Del Mar for Saturday. And uh, I landed on the ninth race, which is a uh, turf route going a mile on the turf. It's a maiden special for two-year-old fillies. And so what I'll do is I'll, I'll run through the what I'm going to call the also rams, and, and then I'll focus on the two horses that I'm interested in. So I'll start with the two out of balance. This horse ran a good second on a, in a turf route, and so certainly, um, you know, could be live here. I, I don't particularly like either the breeding or the the connections, so I'm going to pass that one at a morning line of, of five to one. Um, I'll jump to the four, uh, which is a horse named Reach, 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 20 to one morning line for Doug O'Neill. Don't love the breeding here. Not a great spot for O'Neill. I'll, I'll pass that one as well. Uh, the five, Samanda, also 20 to one morning line. It's kind of the same story. Don't like the breeding. Uh, not a great spot for the, for the trainer. Um, respect for, for DeSormo, of course, but, um, but I'll, I'll pass that one. The six, uh, Bizwax, um, Again, kind of a similar story. Don't don't like the breeding. Uh, the horse ran a, a solid third uh, in a stakes race, pulling a rooted ground on the turf at Delmar. So don't uh, begrudge anyone for liking that one. But uh, at four to one morning line, I, I think I would pass that one as well. Uh, the seven Landon first time starter turf route two year old. I don't like first time starters going a rooted ground on the turf and and low trainer percentages. So we'll give that one a pass at twenty to one also. The eight Hyde Park Corner, morning line fifteen to one. So this horse again, not not particularly well bred for the spot, but did run a, a, a good second at again out to Mar at a mile um, in a maiden special. So you know th- this one could could have a chance, but I don't like that race. There was the slow fractions. Uh, the horse made the lead and, and closed in twenty four flat, which is not great. Uh, so uh, I'm, I'm not convinced that this is really the right spot for this horse. So I'm going to, I'm going to pass that one. Also, uh, the nine and Kanta, uh, five to one, uh, five to two morning line. This horse will be the favorite, I, I believe, uh, close second, uh, sp- turf sprint last out. I'm, uh, I don't love this one either, especially at a short price. The breeding for a, a rooted ground on the turf is, is not there. Certainly good breeding for, for a two year old. There is a really solid, uh, 27% trainer angle in there. So again, this this horse could win, but I, I don't I don't like uh, that one at five to two. Uh, Ten tap water morning line three to one. So this horse, uh, she uh, ran a good second uh, sprinting on the dirt in July, and so I think that that three to one line is from my from my way of looking at it, you're betting dirt sprint form into a turf route off a layoff. So uh, I don't care for that. Although I will say on that one also there is a big a big trainer angle there with, with the layoff. Uh, but again, at a short price, I'll pass that one. So with that, I'll turn to the two horses that I'm the most interested in. I'll start with uh, the three Giza Goddess, 15 to 1 morning line. So this horse will be trying turf for the first time. The sire, Cairo Prince, is, has just been a terrific 
first prep um, sire this year, with, uh, particularly with two-year-olds uh, going uh, going long on the turf. So I uh, really love, love the breeding here. Surface change should be a big help. Um, so Sheriff's not, not terrific in this spot, a uh, low percentage jockey. However, I'll say on the jockey that at one time he was a very capable turf jock, so I think he can get it done. So I, I would like that horse. I, I'd want at least 20 to 1, and then I would hope for more like 30 or 40 to 1, honestly, and then I think that will be a good a good across-the-board kind of bet. And then finally, I'll, I'll focus in on probably my prime pick in the race, which is the number one ask the customer, a 5 to 1 morning line, uh, finished a, a good solid second, uh, last out in the same spot. So I'm very skeptical about whether or not this one will really be five to one. But having said that, closed uh, the, the race had honest fractions, closed in 23 and two. Barry Stevens up, a huge trainer angle, a 42% trainer angle in this spot. So this is this would be my prime pick in this race. Although I will say that when I made a line on this race, uh, uh, she came out at, at three to one. So. I would want a minimum of seven to two and would prefer more like one, five to one. I don't know that I'll get that. If that one's a short price, I would kind of revert back to Giza Goddess as a prime pet. But in terms of the most probable winner, uh, I'm going with the one ask the customer. Thanks, Matt. We'll take a look at those results next week. Thanks again to all of you for joining us. Come back again and visit us. In the meantime, may the horse be with you.